0: For a six-year absence, Dr. Bruce McAbee will be joining us in just a moment. But of course, uppermost on everybody's mind is the pandemic. And Randall and I have had an ongoing discussion about it, and he wanted to mention something that will probably be somewhat political, but let's just go through it and then get on to the main topic of discussion.
1: Randall? Yeah, thanks, Gene. I ran across something earlier this week that's been out for a while. It's called the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, the Great Barrington Declaration, now signed by over 11,400 medical and public health scientists from around the world advocates a targeted approach to pandemic management that does away with lockdowns and fines and other unnecessary behavioral controls that they believe could cause more casualties over the long term than the virus itself. Now it's critics have misrepresented it in a number of ways, including saying it's politically motivated and that it advocates a herd immunity approach to pandemic management. You can confirm What it's actually about for yourself by visiting the Great Barrington Declaration website, where you can review the actual declaration, the FAQs, and sign on as a concerned citizen or medical professional. I've done it myself and hope others will do the same. That's about all I really have to say about it. But I believe that because it can save more lives in the long run, that we really need to take a look at this more seriously than we have been so far.
0: Well, of course, Bruce and I are in the age bracket where we are certainly concerned about this. But I'd rather not get into the ins and outs because that's a different show.
2: I feel like I got a bullseye on my back.
1: Well, remember, we are in that age age group. Yes, I
2: know. Age 78.
1: That is amazing, Bruce. Uh, This... uh the Great Barrington Declaration does advocate a targeted approach that pays special attention to people in high-risk groups. So it's not saying that we should all just let the virus run willy-nilly out in, in the community like some of these people are saying. It's become highly politically charged. No, they really want to take more of the money that's been wasted on the lockdowns and put it towards helping people who really need it while keeping the boat afloat so that Everybody can maintain their quality of living and save more lives in the long run. It's, it's a really good idea. And 11,400 medical and public health scientists from around the world, not just in the United States, I mean, they can't all be wrong.
0: At least I don't have any grandparents to protect or any parents, as a matter of fact, because I've outlived everybody. In fact, I'm, other than Dr. Bruce McAbee, I'm the oldest person in the world right now. <laughs> Bruce, it's been six years since we've had you on the Powercast, and there's some stuff we really want to talk to you about. But I wanted to maybe have you catch up. There's a lot of listeners out there who have heard of you but don't know really the kind of work you've done. I know you've covered a lot of UFO-related subjects. In fact, you had a book out two years ago that no one told us about, The Legacy of 1952, The Year of the UFO. Your publisher, I guess, forgot to tell us. But basically speaking, what got you as a scientist interested in the subject?
2: Well, it was the the explanations or attempted explanations that failed. When I first started looking into this way back in the late 60s, I was uh, struck by the uh, attitude of the skeptics that there was nothing to it. And they'd propose explanations for various sightings, Explanations which were clearly wrong, Uh, and uh, well, I could see as a scientist. I could see the average person might not know it was wrong, but I could see it was uh, there were wrong explanations, and and the uh, government, this is Project Blue Book primarily, uh, managed to get away with it. Uh, This this situation is well illustrated by the first sighting, Kenneth Arnold, June 24, 1947. I've written a, I've written a book about it. As a matter of fact, it's the only book devoted to Kenneth Arnold's sighting. You would think that such a book would have been written way back in the forties or fifties or sixties or seventies, but the uh, people who write read, read about his sighting considered it to be uh, weak testimony, since it was only one person involved. It seemed to it seemed, uh, but. What attracted me to this uh, subject of UFOs was explanations like, for example, uh, for the Kenneth Arnold explanation. If you look at Project Blue Book file for what's the official explanation for Kenneth Arnold sighting, it says mirage. Well, now, we all know what a mirage looks like. I guess anybody who's driven along a highway is heated by the sun, and uh, is reasonably flat highway. You see distorted images of whatever is up ahead of you caused by um, variations in temperature of the atmosphere in various level layers, various levels and that variation in temperature of the atmosphere causes light beams to bend and uh, distorts images You can see the same effect uh, if you look uh, through the air, the hot air is rising up above a candle Look at the distance, something in the distance through a candle and Play uh, heat, and uh, you see you see this distortion going on. Well, uh, then you're talking about a particular type of mirage, a mountain top mirage. A mountain top mirage, you have to be about of the altitude of the mountain in order to see the mirage. And what you do see is an inverted image of the uh, peak of the mountain. Kenneth Arrow is near a mountain called Mount Rainier, fourteen thousand four hundred feet. Uh, is Mount Rainier. And Kenneth Arrow was about 9,500. So, in principle, there could have been a uh, a mirage of the, of the mountain peak if there were if the layer air temperature gradient was was proper. Well, uh, uh, Kenneth Arrow was cl- was def- definitely describing objects that flew from his left up to the north of where he was. He was in an airplane 20 uh, some miles south-southwest of Mount Rainier and he first noticed these things off to his left north and they flew traveled at high speed right in front, across in front of him, and he lost sight of them by Mount Adams, 50 miles south so there was a huge amount of left-right motion for these objects well guess what the mountaintop mirage sits on top of the mountain doesn't go anywhere unless the mountain if the mountain blew up, maybe the mountain mirage would move, but Uh, so when I read the the official explanation is a mountaintop mirage there's something wrong here those guys in the Air Force can't be that stupid can they Uh, a lot of explanations were were offered like that I I invite anybody to get a hold of a book I wrote called Three Minutes in June Three Minutes in June that's the time of sighting time of Kenneth Arnold's sighting three minutes in June, the sighting that changed the world is a, a technical analysis of Arnold's sighting uh, and everything that goes along with it uh, and the reaction of the uh, news media and so on to uh, to what he said anyway these um, i i was l- doing learning this stuff in the late 60s and early 70s and uh, what got me interested in it, as I said it was the explanations. And then I I sort of had the feeling after some years of investigations and talking to witnesses and getting their stories out and so on, the UFO investigator uh, is sort of like a uh, lawyer for the witness. Uh, The witness is accused of a crime, seeing a UFO. And then the lawyer tries to uh, justify whatever the, the witness is claiming and get the reality level of it Uh, and so uh, it's certainly a defense attorney for the witness rebutting the explanation, the the failed explanation Uh, I had a lot of experience with the failed explanation
0: Let's get into more of this and get into more of the current stuff with Dr. Bruce McAbee with Gene and Randall, you're in
3: The (laughs) Paracast. Hello Paracast people, I'm Greg Carlwood, the host of the Higher Side Chats podcast, an uninterrupted and action-packed interview-based show where I talk to some of the brightest minds for our troubled times about all things paranormal, occult, esoteric, and conspiratorial. After ten years, we've heard it all. Alien moon bases, archons, hollow earth, technocratic and biomedical agendas, magic, mind control, and Lovecraftian monsters. Oh my. Usually, the first hour of the show is free, and the second hour is for members who sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at $8 a month. But praise be, we're giving Paracast listeners two free weeks of plus when you use the all-caps coupon code PARACAST. Go to thehighersidechats.com, sign up with the code PARACAST, and dive into the nearly never-ending archive of great interviews I've been lucky enough to get over the years, from David Politis to David Icke, and many, many guests not named David. Check it out. You're going to love it. All right, was that good? Can we use that one?
7: Extendivite really works. Here are some reviews from Amazon.com. John Hess,
8: 5 out of 5 stars. Awesome. Probably my only review, but at age 40, I was getting bad heartthrob and left arm pain, mainly before bed. I even
2: stopped smoking and drinking sodas for a month, and that didn't work. After one day of taking Extendivite, it was gone and hasn't returned in three years. I've ordered Extendivite 13 times, so Amazon just said. Juliet Hordick. I've ordered this product before in liquid form. It is fantastic. My
9: whole family's been on it. To order, call 1-877-928-8822.
8: That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit our website at heartdrop.com. Extend your life with
6: Extendover.
10: This is George Dory from Coast to Coast AM and History Channel's Ancient Aliens. We support the amazing energy, nutrition, and skincare products from Jeunesse. Jeunesse products are designed by leading doctors in their field with natural ingredients and even stem cell technology. These products help your body perform and look better. Shop Jeunesse at GCNLife.com or call 1-844-443-6637. GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637.
11: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: We have Dr. Bruce Maccabee joining us, retired Navy physicist. And we're going back to the beginning where he... First became interested in UFOs, read about the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and was concerned about the explanation that it was a mirage. Now, obviously we've all heard about Arnold, but you focused a lot more attention on Arnold than others did. Did you follow his goings-on when he worked with Ray Palmer to investigate Maury Island at all?
2: I didn't pay any attention to that in the book. I realized there was follow-on stuff, but what, what is an important that first sighting is all the information uh, that's needed to understand that first sighting. Arnold talked about it many, many times over the years following. I've provided in the book four different testimonies, you might say. Uh, his first, the, the day after the sighting, his discussion on radio interview, and then uh, a couple of weeks later he wrote a uh, document that's in the Project Blue Book file it is a big long letter to the Air Force de- describing the sighting minute by minute, and then a, a, third, uh, a third version of the story is published in uh, The Coming of the Saucers, the book that Palmer published about Kenneth sighting, and the fourth one is, was at the uh, MUFON symposium, or not MUFON uh, UFO symposium in San Francisco in 1987, 40th anniversary. Four different times that he's asked to uh, re- recite the history of his sighting, and they're all the same. Even over that big space of time, he never he never expanded it or anything. Now there was one thing that the Air Force didn't realize, left out of their testimony or their analysis. Was it a uh, prospector? Fred Johnson was uh, prospecting on Mount Adams, 50 miles south of uh, where Kenneth Arnold was. And this Fred Johnson wrote a letter to the FBI saying that he saw this object, and uh, well, yeah, he saw he saw this object. These objects fly over and his uh, compass wobbled as they traveled by. So, Fred Johnson, uh, not only is another witness, he's the first person to talk about electromagnetic effects from flying saucers.
1: And That's I've, really interesting, actually. Uh, you got to get the
2: book. You see I, how I argued that Kenneth Arnold was the right guy at the right time in the right place. Uh, he was in an airplane that gave him a, a horizon-to-horizon view. you could see somebody on the ground might have seen these things fly over for a few seconds, they might see them, but that's a, Arnold had, ever had them in sight for three minutes and he uh, wondered, he, he said, he said he, as he's looking at these strange things, he's trying to understand what, why he can't see any wings why he can't see any control surfaces why he can't see any evidence of propulsion uh, jets or propellers or anything normal, he said it was like a semicircular thing with a a convex rear end and uh, he had a clock on his dashboard. He he, start, he he looked at when these things went by Mount Rainier, which was a little bit to his left and twenty miles away. They he started the clock, you might say a hundred and two seconds later, they were going past Mount Adams. That calculated out to seventeen hundred miles an hour. So uh, that was uh, well. The guy who broke the sound barrier did it in October of 1947. That was about 700 miles an hour. So these things are already going a thousand miles an hour faster than our fastest aircraft.
1: Right, and they're uh, they were seen as when he reported them, not necessarily as saucers. But if I recall correctly, uh, they had a they were almost like a bat wing on the back. Uh, described as, and nothing like that in those days could break the sound barrier. I'm not even sure if they do today. Uh, I know they've got the B-2 bombers and and such, and they're pretty bizarre looking, but we didn't really have anything quite like that then. I mean, there was the flying wing, but uh, we I couldn't. Act,
2: the actual description of the shape, he drew a picture of it. There are nine objects that he counted. One of them was different from the rest. He thought that one might be special because uh, it might be the the one in control of the others. He didn't know. Right. So eight of them looked like if you took a plate, if you were looking at the uh, looking along along the axis of this thing. It's circular, mostly circular, but at the rear the rear edge it, uh, straightened out into, to form a V shape at the back. A, a wide angled V shape.
1: Exactly. Now, have have you seen? Had, uh, had one that had. Doctor Dr. Dr. Yes. Yes. Have you seen James Fox's uh, new documentary, The Phenomenon, yet? I have not. That is something you should check out. Now, he covers Arnold's case briefly there, and he and you may have seen this uh, somewhere else, but he found uh, another witness to a very similar type of craft right around the same time as that sighting. It's got a photograph of what looks like that type of craft that Arnold reported. Do you know the, the, the photograph I'm is, talking about?
2: The guy in Phoenix, Arizona.
1: And it's just, yeah, it's a small, right it, it's a black object. It looks like it's got a little light or dome on top, and it's got that curved back end on it.
2: Yeah, I don't remember a light. Uh, it, was, it was a the daytime picture that I'm thinking yes. of—I can't think of the name of the guy but it looks like sort of like the heel of a
1: shoe. Yeah, very much so. And uh, is that, in your opinion, is that photo genuine?
2: Well, I wouldn't be surprised. The guy was uh, interviewed by the Air Force, but uh, this was this was when when things were starting and the Air Force was treating it seriously, <laughs> instead of trying to explain everything away. They wanted wanted to know what was going on, and. Uh, they uh, included that picture in uh, one of the few top-secret documents that we were able to get out of the uh, out of the Air Force a years ago, when we were still interested in uh, getting getting the original Air Force documents from 1947. Uh, wish I could remember the guy's name, but he uh, can't remember if there was. I know there was one picture. There might have been more than one. Anyway the Air Force investigators uh, made a copy of the picture and put it into their their top-secret report, along with other sightings that they collected in the 1947
0: timeframe. We're going to move to your 1952 book in a second. I want to remind our listeners that if you sign up for our subscription service, the PowerCast Plus, which includes the After the PowerCast podcast and version of this show, Free of the Network Ads, For a long term subscription, five years or lifetime, we'll give you a free coupon code for the phenomenon, which means you can download it free. And we only have a few of those coupon codes. So we need you to check it out right away. Go to theparacast.plus, theparacast.plus, for more information. Dr. Bruce McAbee is here. Got more to come with Gene and Randall. You're in the
1: Paracast.
6: USA Radio News with, Dan Naraki. with the presidential campaign in its final days, both President Trump and former Vice President Biden are talking about their plans for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking at a rally Saturday in Flint, Michigan, Biden said he would push for a national mask mandate. We're going to act to get
0: COVID under control. On day one of my presidency, I'll put an action, a plan, a national mandate, mask wearing, social distancing, testing, tracing, all things.
6: As President Obama just said, it should have and could have been put in place months and months ago. While President Trump touted upcoming treatments and vaccines to battle the virus at a rally in Bucks County, Pennsylvania.
7: And our vaccine will eradicate the virus and end the pandemic once and for all. Americans will return to school and to life by slashing red tape and cutting bureaucracy. We're producing this vaccine in record time.
6: USA Radio News. More than 90 million Americans have taken advantage of the opportunities to vote early, according to new data released on Saturday. That's nearly double the number of early ballots cast in 2016 and 60% of all ballots cast four years ago. The data from the U.S. Elections Project at the University of Florida predicts a turnout that will surpass the 138 million who voted in 2016 and could give the 2020 election the highest participation percentage in more than a century. More than 1 million Slovakians lined up Saturday to be tested for the coronavirus. The unique plan to try to curb a second wave of infections sweeping across Europe involved more than 40,000 medical, military, law enforcement, and administrative personnel to coordinate the day of testing at 5,000 testing sites. The goal is to eventually test Slovakia's entire adult population with everyone over the age of 10, which is about 4 million people, to be tested in the next two weeks. The nation of around 5.5 million has reported more than 57,000 cases of COVID-19 so far. This is USA Radio News.
13: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: We have Dr. Bruce McAbee. And we're covering some of his background in covering UFOs. Of course, the fact that he got interested in the Kenneth Arnold case from 1947 was disenchanted by the Air Force's attempt to explain it away as a mirage. And I know there's a lot of stuff we want to bring you up to date on, but this book he did in 2018, The Legacy of 1952, The Year of the UFO. What really interesting insights can you present from that?
2: Well, first of all, the year 1952 uh, was an amazing UFO year. There had been a flurry of sightings in 1947 when this thing sort of began the the modern UFO. We could we could talk about UFO or strange things in the in the sky going back tens, hundreds, or thousands of years, but what I call the the modern UFO period begins in June of 1947. The first few months of June, July, and August, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of sightings. But this is before people were really alerted to uh, something of, of interest. And so there, were, there weren't were any civilian investigators. The Air Force investigated sightings because they were afraid there might be something to it. Uh, we always have the uh, uh, Conundrum of the uh, the crash at Roswell, and I sort of hold that at arm's length because the crash at Roswell was covered up immediately and, and didn't become alive again for 30 years, so it had no impact on uh, what was going on with the uh, Air Force investigation at the time of, of 1952, which was the next the next big flap year. And in the summer of 1952, the Air Force collected more uh, sightings that year than any other year. And they were having nine, in uh, June, July, and early August of 1952, the sighting rate got into the set several tens per day. I think the one day, the July 26 or something, they had logged about 50 sightings in that one day. And There was so much going on that the the press could not ignore it. They had, up to that point, the press had uh, sort of considered that UFOs were part of the silly season. But when they got to the point where they were getting tens of sightings, and if you if you get the book, you can see some of the uh, newspaper stories, like people people see uh, thousands of saucers or something, some huge numbers like that.
1: Anyway, I mean, obviously, like thousands of saucers don't seem to be reasonable, but there were some really important sightings then, like the Washington National sightings, for example.
2: Yeah. It built up in a uh, in a crescendo, starting in April, the number of sightings per 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 week, shall we say, was was increasing, and filling the newspapers with with stories, and then the uh, Washington sighting, First, the first weekend of Washington sightings occurred, and uh, there were airplane, Navy Navy fighters, aircraft flying over Washington, D.C., chasing these things picked up on radar. That happened on a Saturday evening and Sunday morning, early Sunday morning. Then during the following week, There was stories that the uh, Air Force had uh, directed the pilots chasing these things to shoot them down. If they couldn't get them to land, they were supposed to shoot them down. And that caused a big ruckus in the press uh, because nobody knew what would happen if you fired on one of these things. The Air Force was caught in between trying to convince everybody there was nothing to it and, nevertheless, tell the pilots that they had to chase these things and try to shoot them. <laughs> the second weekend, there was a second weekend, that, again, it was on Saturday night, the 25th, and Sunday, the 26th, I think it was, of, of July. Um, they had more sightings over Washington, D.C. Now, these were not, they were not just visible sightings, but they were picking up targets on radar. And seeing these targets darting around on radar... At high speeds and are hovering uh, types of things they weren't accustomed to seeing on radar. If you imagine an airplane flying on some path, some pathway, some track, it goes in a continuous manner. It doesn't jump from one point to another. But these things seem to be uh, they'd be stationary at one location and then disappear from that location and pop up somewhere else. Well, all this all this stuff going on. Caused the Air Force to, uh, well, put their foot down, you might say, on the 26th uh, 20, of July, I forget the date now. Um, General John, John Sanford, who is the director of Air Force intelligence, uh, was, was directed by uh, Vandenberg, the chief of staff of the Air Force, to hold a press conference and I don't know if you would say, there aren't any term, words like explain it away, but it's clear that that's what Samford tried to do. He uh, started off by saying that there had been uh, hundreds of recitings, uh, of unbelievable things, incredible things by credible people. He gave some some hint of credibility to to the sightings that something something had happened, but then he went on to say that he thought uh, most most of the sightings over Washington D.C. the radar detections were a result of and here here comes this uh, sort of a mirage for radar.
1: Right now, now if I can ask you a few questions about this because I this I think is really. Uh, an understated sighting, or it has been for a number of years. I remember when I first looked at it, they had those photographs that were taken over the White House. But when you got looking at those, they were were clearly just refractions off the street lamps. And I thought there was nothing to it. And it went out of my mind for years until I uncovered a lot of what you're talking about now. Now, they tried to explain this, like you were saying, as refractions of the radar, off-temperature inversions. Now, I I think if that's what they really believed, they wouldn't be telling their pilots to shoot at them, for one thing. The other thing is, there was one aircraft that went up. These were F-94 jet interceptors. Like you say, they had them tracked on radar. Then the jet interceptor's radar locked onto it. Then the pilot made visual Contact and said that his aircraft had been surrounded by these bluish white lights. Now, from an optical perspective, do you think it's possible for all three of those things to come together and still be some sort of an optical illusion?
2: Well, the refraction bends the radar beam is much more much more effective on the radar beam than it is on visible light. There was the uh, uh, another case which was. In, in the FBI file, actually, is where I first saw it. Where um, a pilot was directed to uh, chase some target, and uh, he he picked it up. He, he he said he could see a see a light up ahead of him. And as he's flying along, trying trying to chase it, all all of a sudden it sped up at a high speed, and uh, the pilot they could see this happening on radar. At the same time, the pilot was calling in saying uh, he couldn't catch up to it; it was getting it was getting away from him, or to that effect.
1: That's exactly what I, the the case I'm talking about, where his radar on his airplane also detected it. So I'm thinking if it was some sort of a temperature inversion mirage on the radar, I mean, why would ground radar from two stations and an aircraft? Pick up the same thing plus a visual sighting. I mean, to me, that just seems like it's going a little too far to call that just some sort of a temperature inversion illusion.
0: Let's do our break with Dr. Bruce McAbee and Gene and Randall. You're
1: in the Paracast.
12: Thank you for listening to GCN.
0: and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about
7: Paracast Plus.
14: We've all seen and perhaps use the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Have you noticed how it dries your skin, and as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective? GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam meeting or exceeding all requirements set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Come to GCNteam.com, keyword antibacterial, or call 877-878-4203.
7: This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast.
0: Dr. Bruce McAbee joining us with Gina Randall talking about the 1952 UFO flap, especially those sightings in washington dc now randall asked dr Maccabee a question that you have a response bruce the,
2: the refractive effect visible light isn't isn't as strong as it is on radar so the air force tried tried to convince the press and apparently did convince the press that temperature inversion solved all these problems sanford when a press conference didn't have any one of the pe- people there who was an actual witness, uh, except well, they had uh, people looking at the watching the radar uh, as this happened.
1: Well, these people were highly trained radar operators who were supposed to know the difference between a temperature inversion, you know, a radar reflection, and something that was real. And you can see that they clearly say that they didn't believe that these were all just temperature inversions.
2: diversions. Right. Captain NRJ Rupel wrote the book The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, published in 19, 1955. He was the head of Project Blue Book at the time, and he was also at the uh, on the second weekend of radar detections. He uh, was one of the witnesses to the radar itself, and there was one other guy who was a radar specialist Uh, and they did not believe that these things were um, merely refractive effects of the atmosphere causing the beam to bend down and reflect off of targets on the ground Uh, but when when Sanford held held his press conference he said uh, that aside from the the There being incredible reports From credible people He said that as far as he was concerned It was all natural phenomena Probably refractive index Or or The effect of a mirage on the radar Refractive index bending And the press For this long press conference It took 80 minutes um, The press left With uh, stories like saying uh, Sanford uh, uh, oh, flying saucers are all hot air, something like that. Well, the, the, the legacy left by 1952 was uh, the idea that there was nothing, nothing to flying saucers. Any explanation is therefore okay. If the first explanation didn't work, try another one.
1: Well, back then, too, uh, in addition to Washington, D.C., they were also reported over the Hanford nuclear site. It seems like UFOs have always had an interest in uh, uh, the nuclear part of our uh, development as a civilization. What is your take on that?
2: Yeah, they, they certainly paid attention. To the, they're, they're all over the place, but they were, paid some attention to nuclear places, like... Uh, 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 I can't think of the name of the the airport, Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, there was a uh, the Oak uh, Oak Ridge. You mentioned Hanford plant where
1: they right uh, yeah Los Alamos Los
2: Alamos yeah Oak Ridge.
1: Even Roswell, the Roswell Army Airfield, was where they were launching the, uh, like the Enola Gay out of, for right, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yes. And so it's it, Air Force Base. Uh, they had stored things. Um, if you if you get the uh, the book for the the first first of four books that I did did recently, the, the FBI. CIA UFO connection will tell you all about the uh, uh, sightings all over the United States, including the ones over uh, nuclear plants. They had some strange sightings over nuclear plants.
1: It's really interesting that you would mention Kirtland Air Force Base there, because now, and and this is a question for you, because uh, for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with you as uh, people who have been into ufology for quite a while, you are a trained physicist with, and a specialist with optics. And according to your resume, you are the Navy's program manager for rapid retargeting of high-power laser beams from space-based lasers for the Strategic Defense Initiative Office. Now, the missile defense agency and this had to do with reagan's star wars program back in the 80s now uh, when you look at paul benowitz's photos and i'm not sure if you've ever checked those out but they look to me very much like some kind of plasma that could be created by some kind of high powered particle beam system and that was all down at kirtland air force base just like you were saying. What do you think of those photos? Have you had a chance to look at those Benowitz photos?
2: You know, I've seen some, I guess, many, many years ago. Uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't tried to uh, investigate Mr. Benowitz very much. There was an overlap of uh, sighting UFO sightings at Kirtland Air Force Base area. Uh, the, let's see the. Uh, the nuclear facility. But, well, anyway,
1: would it be possible for laser beams to create some sort of a plasma effect in the atmosphere that would if, if cause it can, to glow? If you, can,
2: if you can focus it, focus it enough, get enough energy per unit volume. Uh, this is done; can be done routinely with. Laser, short laser pulses like a few microsecond direction laser pulse uh, that carries uh, a few joules worth of energy and you focus it down into a, uh, a spot size a few millimeters in size, you get the uh, electric field built up to the point where it rips electrons off the atoms and that, that's what a plasma is, is the a mixture of uh, positive and negative particles you might say the positive atom is missing an electron and the free electron itself Uh, but to be able to uh, make a a plasma in the atmosphere at a long distance would require uh, extreme power now what I was working on for the uh, strategic defense initiative was uh, big, big lasers, like uh, a multi-meter diameter, ten-meter diameter mirror, that you would focus at some uh, rocket that's coming at you, with a, a, a nuclear bomb on it, and uh, try to heat the surface of the rocket to the point where you burn right through and uh, the, outer, the outer wall and uh, destroy the internal electronics so that the thing goes off well, off track and presumably uh, crashes in the, in the ocean or something like that before it gets to you. <laughs> you have to be careful about shooting down atomic missiles because you might uh, shoot it right into your own lap.
1: And uh yeah, that's pretty high-tech stuff, super top secret. I They're still studying some of that these days, but you don't hear much about it. Right.
2: And by the now, way, everybody asks me, well, they try to say this is all done to a fight off aliens. And I have to say, I was uh, at the many meetings that I attended between 1980 uh, 1985 or 6 and 1996 uh, many meetings I attended I paid attention to uh, where they were design- what was part of the design the overall design were they designed to fire outwards away from the earth or inwards towards the earth uh, of course the the uh, uh, primary, uh, the primary reason for having them was to be able to shoot down missiles as they're falling. A, tra- a missile is following a tra- trajectory from where it's launched, making a great big uh, uh, inverted U-shaped path to to the target, and you would try to come along uh, from some place uh, within a hundred miles or whatever of this missile, and uh, Shoot it down.
0: Doctor MacAbee let's do our break here. More to come with Gene and Randall and Bruce. You're in the paracast
12: thank you for listening to GCN. Visit gcnlive.com today
11: welcome back to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio and now here's gene steinberg
0: first we had to interrupt you while you were in the middle of your description in our past segment can you pick up on it now please right now
1: yeah. So just before the break, there, Bruce, you were saying that in all of your uh, experience working on the Star Wars Wars program, uh, it sounds like you were you didn't come into any knowledge that this program had to, anything to do with defending Earth from aliens.
14: Yeah,
2: I uh, kept my ears wide open, you might say, to hear anything that made it look like. Uh, part of the uh, tasking of this program was to be able to shoot things coming from the outside alien craft or whatever you want to talk talk about the, uh, the uh, use for these big lasers was, was all to be uh, to, to shoot down rockets
1: um, right, was, they were an anti-ballistic missile system
2: yes, that's right
1: Yeah, Uh, although, you know, I mean, Reagan did say something about, you know, imagine what it would be like if we had a common enemy that was not from this earth, right? And so, you know, I wonder if that was just coincidence.
2: Well, he he remember he was a witness anyway, because of a sudden he had on board an an airplane. He was flying in an airplane when he was the governor of California. And uh, so, it maybe that may have been uh, the source of his statements about uh, alien. When when we unite, if there were alien and, and attack from the outside, I'm pretty sure that uh, had there been a need to uh, use these, turn these lasers around and point them away from the Earth instead of towards the Earth, uh, that would have come out somewhere in these discussions of. How a system was to be built, so-called architecture for a system. And the architecture is built to, to solve a certain number of types of problems. The, the tasking for the system. The tasking for the system was to shoot down missiles which might get to be a couple hundred miles above the surface of the earth, but no farther than that. Uh, no, nobody was going to try to shoot down the moon or something. And as I said there. There weren't any, weren't any discussions of how you would turn the laser out so it's pointing outwards and shoot down something that's coming at high speed from the outside. There were quite there were suggestions that if you were to see a uh, uh, a big chunk of rock heading towards the earth, you might try to take, shine a laser at it. And cause a uh, ejection of plasma, heated heated gases and ions from this uh, chunk of rock, and change its trajectory to to save the Earth or something. That would be the only the only reason that uh, they would turn one of these big lasers around and try to point it at something.
1: Right, and to be clear, you're talking about the space-based platforms that they were talking about back then. Yeah. There were some ground components to that as well they were building a really large one but then the whole pro- project got abandoned And right. so, so I'm not sure that much on the ground ever really did get built uh, they've got what well, they do have the Starfire range where they do the testing and I know that they put one in uh, 747 that they could fly around in actually and aim at different things so right. and now they're talking about putting them in fighters
2: yes the, the, uh, they, they thought they had a, uh, a really reasonable justification for the airborne laser uh, to be able to uh, protect us from Korea, North Korea if they were to shoot a missile we'd have to have a couple of airborne laser uh, craft uh, in the area all the time in order to be able to uh, counterattack any missile that the, that the uh, North Koreans might launch, might launch, but I guess, i don't know whether, they're still, whether they still have any uh, patrolling going on like that.
1: Let me ask you about a couple of other uh, related things in terms of photos. Now, I'm—you know—most of us out here, we've heard of the Edward Meyer case, and we know what we think of it. But you know the Edward Meyer photos from the contactee in Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of those? Have photos?
2: My website. <laughs> have to get my website. Brumac dot Triple dot com. Right, yeah.
1: That is a really good website, by the way. It's it, it's sort of old fashioned in its design, but there is a wealth of information there. So definitely people should visit the site. But can you tell our listeners, just uh, for the show, what you think of these photos? You
2: know, uh, the, reason I, the reason I brought it on my website is because I've got a, uh, uh, a complete analysis of the movie that he was showing, his first. His first uh, photographic testimony was a movie, and uh, it shows a a, a Meyer-type UFO that's going left and right and left and right and left and right. I hate to use the terminology, but it looks very much like a pendulum.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, that was my impression as well.
2: And my paper on this got published in the IUR, International UFO Reporter, 30, 20 some years ago under the title of Pendulum from the Pleiades <laughs> anyway uh, this movie uh, they have tried to argue that well the uh, UFOs can fly any track that they want and uh, my argument is well it's really strange that they happen to uh, move along a track that has a center point in other words, it swings an arc, a section of arc with a fixed suspension point. Uh, if you look at this this Meyer movie, uh, you see it begins with this UFO starting at the left-hand side, if I recall correctly, being slowly moving to the left, and then all of a sudden it starts to move to the right, and it goes... I hate to use the term swinging again, but it goes swinging down to the bottom, the lowest point of the trajectory, and then it goes up as it as it continues to the to the right, and then it stops its motion and reverses, and goes back past the center point, the lowest point of the trajectory, up to the the highest altitude point on the left side, and back and forth and back and forth. It's kind of hard for me to look at that and not say pendulum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can find my spending my time and analysis to this movie itself after I had figured out what the, what the movie was showing, and the the motion of this object uh, to, uh, initially is what we would call a planar pendulum. It's typically, you hold the uh, su- suspension point fixed, pull a, pull the uh, the bob, the the weight, whatever you want to call it off to one side and then let go and it swings back and forth and it sweeps out a uh, what's known as a plane surface okay if you were to take the suspension point and move the suspension point in a little circle you could gradually get this planar pendulum to become what's known as a tor, a, uh, a, well, a circular motion pen- pendulum
0: isn't that typical, though? We're going to break in a moment here. Bruce, we're going to break in a moment. Isn't that typical, though, of the stuff that emerged from Billy Meyer? By the way, listeners, our staff announcer, Bob Zanotti, actually interviewed Billy Meyer. And he posted it somewhere. I have to find it because I think he helped Meyer speak in English. So as an historical perspective, this might be fascinating to check out. Got Dr. Bruce McAbee with... Gene and Randall, you're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So, I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about
16: Paracast Plus. Hey folks, Tom D for paranormaldate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up free at paranormaldate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, ghosts, zombies, UFOs, crop circles, and more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you. People who seek a little more than the other dating services offer. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and you want to connect with others, use the code George for a substantial discount. So many people want to share their experiences with the paranormal, the afterlife, the unusual. And this is the place to meet and share common interests with those of like minds. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word George and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like.
11: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: Dr. Bruce McAbee is joining us and he has something more to say about his explorations into the exploits of Billy Meyer. One of our... Early guests on the show, a guy named Jeff Ritzman, once made a very credible duplicate of the infamous wedding cake photo from Billy uh-huh. Meyer. Boy, did that start a ruckus.
2: <laughs> yeah, there always has been. Well, I was what I was getting at was the period, the, there's a time situation with a pendulum here. The pendulum goes back and forth, left and right. The period of the pendulum, the time it takes to go from one side to the other and back again, is determined uh, by the length of the pendulum, uh, not by its weight, but by the weight, the, by the length of the suspension. And you can calculate the time of a uh, planar pendulum, calculate what the length of the suspension is from the period of the planar pendulum, and then it turns out the torsion pendulum going around in circles has the same period and in his movie you see it start off as a planar pendulum and then it ends up as a a torsion pendulum as it's swinging around uh, it looks like it hits a distant tree uh, just barely touching this distant tree well I I got my copy I got this uh, movie from uh, a Japanese uh, investigator who uh, had made a copy of uh, Meyer's movie and gave me a copy of that that I could analyze. And he went to uh, the place where Meyer lived and went to the area where this pendulum, where this uh, UFO supposedly was going back and forth. And uh, guess what? There wasn't any tree there. (laughs) So it had to be uh, all uh, a setup. And apparently Meyer did have some help with other people anyway my my own conclusion was i couldn't say that my ear never had any uh, ufo experiences but i'm not using his his uh experiences as evidence for
0: ufos (laughs) well you know it's interesting these days you could take your iphone and set up a room with a green screen and create some pretty credible stuff with some fairly low-cost rendering software I mean, how the world has changed.
2: Yeah. Well, speaking of change, let's jump up to the modern. Uh, Please. I think I sent you a uh, press release.
0: Yes. Let me give the headline of the press release. This is why we actually had you back on the show. And I wanted to give people the background first so they understand where you've been, where you're coming from before we go here. Navy physicist retired Dr. Bruce McAbee predicts that the Navy Special Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP Task Force, UAPTF, will confirm what civilian investigators have long suspected some UAP are vehicles controlled by non-human intelligences. Now, we all know about the task force. But you really think they're going to confirm anything at all? Well, they lead up to it—the
2: AATIP stuff. They've made a list of what they call observables. If you want, if you think something is a normal man-made craft, then these observables won't won't be observed. Observables such as the ability to appear or disappear as if they had just vanished. From sight, gone into another dimension or something like that. These observables, that uh, they were talking about, were uh, actually observed way back as early as 1947. The extremely high speeds in 1947. A document written by U.S. Air Force investigators saying that uh, the the uh, they. Suddenly appear as if dropping down from a high altitude, or suddenly disappear as if complete disintegration and having no observer, no uh, a weird shape with no control services, no obvious means of propulsion. All this stuff that they categorize the uh, the true UFOs, what I used to call TRUFO, T R U F O, the true UFOs. Uh, have all or, or most of these observables and uh, as I said we uh, really haven't learned much then I guess over the last 70 years because the observables that they talked about uh, back in 1947 are essentially the same ones that they seem to have almost almost like they claim to have discovered these observables as part of the uh, uh, secret Uh, investigation stuff going on, the first came, the the stuff that first became visible to the public in December of 2017, uh, when uh, the New York Times had a big article on uh, the AATIP.
1: uh, The Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program, right? Yeah, we cover that with just about everybody that comes on these days because uh, it has become very high profile and it just goes to show that they have been investigating them, even though most of the people of the official in, on the official side was, would say no. And, and this actually brings up a really interesting point, because at one point you did a review of John Alexander's uh, book on UFOs where he was saying that there was really nothing to it, and they weren't doing anything.
2: Yeah, well, the John Alexander situation is amusing. If you you get my book, FBI, CIA, UFO Connection, uh, you find in the the ending section of chapters, my own direct interactions with the CIA in this regard, because of a Unusual situation that I was uh, working for the Navy, but doing uh, work on generating underwater sound with lasers.
17: Uh, and
2: uh, it turned out that the CIA had an interest in that, and I was doing the only, i was the only person in the United States doing work on it. They knew that some people were doing it in uh, Russia, and uh, they needed to know what what the possibility would be that this could be used for communication between aircraft and uh, submarines secure sort of secure common secure communications between an aircraft up above the water and a submarine down below. The submarine wouldn't have to come up to uh, listen by radio if it um, could listen to sound generated at the surface of the water Uh, and then traveled. Under, underwater sound is pretty pretty effective stuff. Anyway, that sort of got me into the uh, into the CIA.
0: Now, we're going to continue with this in our next segment because I, we had Dr. Alexander on just very recently, repeating a lot of the things he had to say. So, Dr. Bruce McAbee, fascinating press release that we're covering here about the Pentagon UAP Task Force. More to come with Gene and Randall. You're in the Paracast.
12: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
16: Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to TeamGaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's TeamGaday.com with Longevity. Teamgaday.com. U.S.A. Radio News with
6: Dan Naraki. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden blitz the battleground states of Michigan and Pennsylvania Saturday, trying to shore up support just days away from the election. In Flint, Biden told his supporters that a national mask mandate is part of his plan to deal with the pandemic.
14: On
0: day one of my presidency, I'll put in action, a plan I've been taking about, talking about for months, already laid out. A national mandate, mask wearing, social distancing, testing, tracing.
6: All things, as President Obama just said, that should have and could have been put in place months and months ago. President Trump told supporters in Reading, Pennsylvania, that Biden's plan would result in a national lockdown. Under Biden, there will be no school, no graduations, no weddings, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, no Easter, no Fourth of July. There will be no future for our country. Other than that, he's going to do a great job. This is USA Radio News. United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced Saturday a month long national lockdown as COVID cases in the country have been increasing quickly. The lockdown will start on November 5th and run through December 2nd. In announcing the new lockdown, Johnson said he did not make his decision lightly.
18: You know, I'm not going to pretend to you that these judgments aren't incredibly difficult. They are incredibly difficult, and um, we have to find the right balance. And we have to change uh, with the changing pattern of the virus. And alas, what we're seeing now is a pretty consistent surge, not just in this country, uh, but across many of our friends uh, and partners uh, in in Europe, so uh, we have
6: to deal with it. The UK has been averaging at least 20,000 new coronavirus cases a day for the last week, with deaths rising to more than 46,000, the highest total in Europe. The UK joins Belgium, the Czech Republic, France, Germany and Ireland in announcing new lockdowns over the last week. This is USA Radio News.
1: Hi, it's Grant Cameron from presidentialufo.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: We're talking here, Bruce, about your interactions with the CIA. So the point I guess you're making here is that Dr. Alexander kind of denies a connection that you realize exists.
2: Well... Not exactly. I didn't know I didn't, didn't know John Alexander until he called me up on the phone in 1985, I think, and said he wanted to get together and talk about the uh, UFO situation. Uh, it was unclassified information, and uh, I wrote about this in my in my book, The FBI CIA UFO Connection, uh, how Alexander. Described to me how he said there's good news and there's bad news And they are the same (laughs) The good news is that there's, there's no UFO investigation group going on in the government That means it's wide open for civilian investigators without any interference from the government Then the bad news is the government isn't doing anything about it Which means nobody's minding the store, so to speak leaving it all up to civilian investigators who can't handle the whole whole thing. So, my own opinion was that uh, Alexander hadn't looked hard enough or whatever to, uh, to be sure that there wasn't anything going on. Now, this was a 1985-86 time frame. This book was published seven or eight years ago. So, I, I believe it was. Maybe, maybe more recently than that, but there had been some 20 years between when I talked to him and thought that he didn't—he had looked. Enough. When I talked, when I talked, some 20 years between when I talked to him and decided that he hadn't looked hard enough. And he wrote his book. When he wrote his book, he said that he had been looking for many years past the time that he talked to me, and still hadn't found anything. But apparently uh, there was something going on because it led led into this A T I P group.
0: Okay, that's an interesting thing to trace here. Now, we look at the Pentagon UFO studies from the early 2000s, the task force now. And it almost seems as if they'd rather pretend that this is all new. It's not based on anything else. But that doesn't make sense to me. What do you have to say about it? The impression you... created by the Pentagon study and then, of course, about the UFO task force, is this is something they've done anew. They don't make reference to any of the old stuff. You follow me?
2: Right. And uh, Elizondo and, and the boys, with their observables, treat this situation as if it's totally new. Uh, nobody's paying it, nobody's... Nobody knows what, what happened ten years ago or twenty or thirty or forty or fifty or sixty or seventy. They pay no attention to it. It's what all all that is important is what they found out, and well, since uh, 2000, oh, it was 2005 or six, supposedly they started this ATIP uh, investigation. I forget it. it ran for five years or something like that, and then sure. it was closed. Uh, And
14: uh,
2: I don't know if we've actually gotten uh, good words on what they discovered in the first five years. They just ended the investigation for some reason or other.
1: We've got a question on our Internet forum at um, forum.theparacast.com from one of our uh, listeners and forum participants Named Rusty Shackelford. Now, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to answer this or are familiar with it, but uh, he's wanting to know about when Greg Bishop stated that Bill Moore was given a map of the Nevada test site with locations on it labeled S4 and Saucer Mesa in 1984, and that around that time uh, Bruce was given maps of. Assuming I'm assuming he's referring to you, given maps of Albuquerque and Kirtland Air Force Base from Colonel Ernie Kellerstrass with certain UFO information marked on it. Have you ever seen any of these S4 maps from Moore? Uh, do you have any commentary on them?
2: Yes, it's a long time ago. Kind of hard to remember everything that was associated with that. I was interested in investigating the. Uh, what I call a Kirtland landing event. and Again, referring to my uh, website, I've got a, a big, long uh, analysis of that, and I also have the uh, full testimony of Hawk, that is Ernie Kellistrop, who's uh, was one of the uh, birds in the aviary, so to speak. He went out of the name of Hawk. Anyway, um, he told us a lot about what happened back in the uh, '60s, uh, and '60s and '70s, uh, when he was uh, going to uh, Kirtland and other places as part of his 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 work. Anyway, I remember some some maps that he had uh, marked mark on. Uh, and some places we try to check out a uh, country club on the northern part of uh, Kirtland, or uh, yeah, right, the, the northern area of Kirtland, are supposedly a country, country club that had been built specifically for meetings uh, about uh, UFOs uh, and some and some other things. As I said, for a long time since I thought about it, but. I, I uh, am familiar with what he's talking about.
1: And where were there uh, markings or indications on these maps that uh, there was some kind of UFO activity taking place?
2: Well, he, he had a place uh, uh, inside the uh, restricted area. Um, let's see. What's the name of the atomic laboratory there? occur when well, you drive out into this big area and there was a building where Kallarstroth uh, was told uh, they uh, test tests for the effects of radiation on animals and when I went there there was in fact a building that could have been what uh, Color stuff was talking about. I was I went there and checked this stuff out in the early 1980s. Uh, I was checking out stuff that had occurred almost 20 years earlier. Uh, there were some uh, indications of it. He talked about a, uh, a building uh, on the north side of uh, Kirtland Okay.
1: Yeah, from what I can tell, north they side just. Of
2: uh, the north side of Albuquerque, where there had been uh, a building that was built specially for um, you well, know, people have meetings and, uh, on, on this subject. I have, to, I have to think about it a while to get get my thoughts all back together. Uh, but I,
1: I know well, you're do, you're doing pretty good actually because, if, uh, uh, yeah,
2: if you could confirm everything Hawk said. What he said would have been enough to blow the lid off. Uh, he was telling me this stuff in uh, 1985, I think. Uh, he, it was enough to would have blown the lid off a cover up if he could have proven what he was talking about.
14: Well, we have about- all
0: this stuff, Bruce, and we'll get, continue on the next segment. And this is referring back, of course, to the FBI-CIA-UFO connection and all these events that... There are lots of things that come up here. And if some proof could be presented in a way that nobody could dismiss it, we could blow it open then, I guess. More to come with Gene Randall and Bruce. You're
1: in The Paracast.
17: Today, many of us are paying attention to our health and what we eat plays an important role. But so often the water we drink is a mere afterthought when it should be a primary part of our daily nutrition. Real water would like to change how you think about the water you drink and how it can play an important role in helping your body restore balance and reach its full potential. The key benefits of every bottle of real water are stabilized negative ions, balanced pH, detoxification, and it hydrates you like never before. And yes, it tastes great. Real water is beyond alkalinity. And due to its proprietary process, called e2 technology it's the only drinking water on the market that can maintain a stable negative ionization which means real science in every bottle order your real water today and take advantage of special pricing for this audience only by calling 1-855-REALWTR or visiting buyrealwaternow.com. That's 1-855-R-E-A-L-W-T-R or buyrealwaternow.com. Order now. 1-855-R-E-A-L-W-T-R or buyrealwaternow.com.
9: Would you like to get back that full head of hair from years past? Introducing Reveal from GCNLife.com. Beverly Hills dermatologist, Dr. Nathan Newman, invented Reveal, which contains polypeptides with natural botanicals and no parabens, sulfates, silicones, or dyes for a salon-quality hair growth product. Product, Reveal. Here's Dr. Newman.
2: I have treated a lot of patients who lose their hair and they lose their confidence. We've created a unique set of polypeptides, which we call HPT6. The HPT6 contains the polypeptides from six different plants. The scalp infusion treatment should be used on wet or dry scalp. The Reveal Hair Care System is designed to be used for men and women alike. Get Reveal at
9: GCNLife.com with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So try Reveal today at GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637. Plus a discount up to 25% off for Reveal at GCMLife.com or 844-443-6637. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening
0: to the podcast. So I guess we're trying to dovetail all that stuff that went on then with what's going on now. So when the original Pentagon UFO study was set up at the instigation of now-former Senator Harry Reid. And they treated it as something brand new. you have any insights into what really went on?
2: I know nothing about that except what's been in the papers and stuff. Would you
0: speculate a little bit about what you think might have gone on there?
2: You mean back at, uh, in the 1960s at the Kirtland Air Force Base? And-
0: no, 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 no. The the fact that we have this new stuff about Pentagon UFO investigations that ignores everything that went before. Is there any history that can be traced before these developments, or what? Or do we have to go back to the '60s and '70s again?
2: Well, I'm trying to i trying to think of what what you could pick things apart. If you read the uh, what I wrote about my interactions with the CIA in 1980, well most of us, 1978 1979 through uh, about uh, 1996 or so I was trying to find some evidence of uh, a group interested in the subject in the CIA and and I never came up with anything except for one guy Ron Pandolfi, who's become famous for other things. Uh, Pandolfi was the guy who discovered that uh, some major aerod- aer- aer- airplane manufacturer organizations were give- essentially like giving away uh, technology to the Chinese. Uh, Pandolfi made it into the newspapers for that. And he was, he's the guy who blew the, blew the whistle on the, our giveaway of technology to the Chinese. Uh, then apparently uh, that was in the newspapers in the nineteen mid nineteen nineties. Apparently, uh, whatever the government did to to suppress giving away stuff to the Chinese wasn't very effective. <laughs> the Chinese got it anyway.
1: But um, yeah, know, they seem to be doing a lot of that.
2: <laughs> have you heard of the weird desk?
1: No, tell us about it.
2: Well, one of the things that I found out when I uh, first met the CIA, and I first met the CIA because of the um, famous world, formerly world famous sightings in uh, the New Zealand sightings of December 1978, and the, the ones in particular, the ones December 30th and 31st,
1: 1978. Those would be like the Kakura Lights, right?
2: That's right. It's still the only sighting to have a paper published in a technical journal, the Applied Optics. I wrote a paper about the uh, brightness of a of a light that was uh, filmed from this air or freighter aircraft. And I could spend hours going into all the details of the uh, New Zealand sightings. But uh, suffice it to say, that the best documented civilian sightings that I'm aware of is they have. Uh, Six or seven witnesses who remember things. Uh, Two of them are uh, experienced pilots as the the pilot and the co-pilot of this freighter aircraft that they were in. Then there happened to be a uh, news crew, cameraman with 8mm, 16mm movie, professional movie camera, uh, and a uh, reporter, Australian TV news reporter. Uh, and uh, actually there were two guys involved. So there are numerous, numerous witnesses, and what really is the, uh, the, crime, the uh, icing on the cake, I guess you could say, is the fact that there was a tape recording that was made on the airplane at the time by the, the uh, reporter, so he was taking real-time information and documenting it, and there was also a tape recorder running at the Wellington Air Traffic Control Center, recording everything that happened uh, on a minute-by-minute basis. So we had a, lot, had a lot of... And in particular, there was radar from uh, the Wellington radar, air traffic control radar. It was uh, being monitored by a couple of uh, radar guys, and uh, they could tell me afterwards... Where these radar targets were with respect to the airplane. Anyway, I needed some help in radar to do uh, analyze these stuff, and uh, I ended up going to the CIA for some help. Uh, not my, not it was not my idea to do that, but somebody suggested that they would have the uh, information I might need to uh, understand the radar stuff. And, well, that resulted in me going to the CIA headquarters a couple of times in 1979, and then. I had no intention of ever going back to the CIA again. And then in 1984, I got a phone call from a CIA guy who wants to know about laser-generated underwater sound, and that's how my interactions with the CIA began. And uh, I actually spoke a couple of times there uh, on UFOs, uh, including the Gulf Breeze case and some other stuff. But,
1: oh, we'd like to get into those cases, but one one of the things that I I'd like to ask you about the Kakura Lights, and is that, yeah, there was some film taken there, and there's two related questions here, and and I'll just, maybe I'll just ask you the first one straight out. I've seen you in a number of interviews and documentaries over the years, and I really wasn't sure from the way that they presented you in those films if they were actually presenting you correctly. And I'd like to know if there are any instances you feel in any of these documentaries when you feel that you've been misquoted or misrepresented, either by skeptics or by the ufology community. Nothing sticks out <laughs> Not like that. Okay, here's something that sticks out for me. When I first saw, that image on the documentary from the Kokura lights and you've got this squiggly thing and they're saying that this took all took place within a a single frame rate so this object must have been moving extremely fast and then they back it up they backed it up with because you were there and you said that you were looking at something but to me that just looks like camera shake it doesn't look like there is an object moving really to me so, you know, is that camera shake, or do you think this object went zipping around in the frame?
14: Well,
2: I argued for a long time that it, was, it must have been, the camera must have bumped something. Better. And I would still get a considerable probability. However, other people took my suggestion and tried to uh, create such an amount of motion. as We're talking about... One tenth of a second—the frame time. This, yes, this thing moved, and it was uh, many. It was maybe ten miles away at the time, so that that would correspond to a considerable amount of motion for a tenth of a second. Now, uh, oddly enough, this links up with the uh, modern the stuff that we've been learning in the last few years as a result of uh, the Navy jet uh, interactions. As long as you think that. UFOs are constrained to operate like uh, Newtonian physics (laughs) you would have to say that this squiggly image in the New Zealand film was somehow a result of a mechanical vibration but we now know from the uh, uh, tic-tac type of stuff that these things can uh, zip zip around and all sorts of ways, making right-angle turns and so on uh, at extremely high speeds. Uh, Stuff that we wouldn't be able to do, uh, that's for sure. So, uh, it it says you didn't have to go back and look at that squiggle squiggle frame with a, a a new sense of the capability of the object. Maybe that was actual motion.
0: I do have some special news for PowerCast Plus subscribers. So Dr. Bruce McAbee will be back for this weekend's episode of After the Paracast, and he'll have a lot more to say to cover his work over the years and that press release. Remember that you have to be a member of the Paracast Plus to get After the Paracast for more info. Check theParacast.plus. We do give a free coupon code for a free copy of the phenomenon, the James Fox documentary. For long term subscriptions to the Paracast Plus, go to the Paracast.plus for more. We got a lot more to come with Dr. Bruce McAbee. We're talking now on various events over the years and centering on that press release that we may get some kind of disclosure announcement from the Pentagon's UAP task force. More to come with Gene and Randall. You're in the Paracast.
1: <laughs>
11: Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit Rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S.com. Warning! If you're
18: drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to pay it all back, because you don't.
11: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
0: We have more comments related to our last segment from Dr. Bruce McAbee. Go ahead, please. Yes,
2: yeah, so I sent you that press release. and Part of that press release is a discussion of what I call the double-sized target. You remember that?
0: The listeners are going to want to know what you're talking about.
2: Well, I just want to know know that you knew what I was talking about first, so uh, you can back up what I'm saying if if it has to be backed up. Sure. You would know where to to look to find the information. uh, As this plane was flying south from Wellington to Christchurch, carrying a load of newspapers and a uh, news crew, uh, the Wellington radar behind them, was tracking their tracks southward. Wellington is north of uh, Christchurch, and on a, on a different island from this. Uh, well, Wellington's on the North Island, south the south end of the North Island of uh, New Zealand, and the radar beam was shooting straight southward, more or less, picking up the airplane, and the radar was also picking up uh, what the uh, what the. Uh, Uh, radar guys described as weird targets, a target that would hover in one location for some period of time and then suddenly disappear from that location and reappear somewhere else, uh, as if it had traveled from point A to point B without having any time in between. Now there's a problem that the uh, radar itself is sampling any point of the atmosphere uh, every 12 seconds, you got a 12 second revolution, uh, five, uh, five revolutions per minute. Uh, so you don't track the uh, t- target 100% of the time. Uh, so something strange might be happening. But then, let's not link it up with the uh, Tic Tac case. I talked to Kevin Day, who was the uh, radar guy who was watching these things on radar. Drop from 28,000 feet to 50 feet above the sea in seven. He said 0.78 seconds. Now, if we were to try to do something like that, it would require 100 Gs of acceleration, or I forget the exact number. I I calculated what would happen if you imagine stepping on the gas from uh, 28,000 feet, stepping on the gas, putting the pedal to the metal, going 14,000 feet. That's halfway by which time you're traveling at a huge rate of speed and then slamming on the brakes so your speed decreases to zero when you're 50 feet above the water (laughs) Uh, that's just a a guess as to how a a Newtonian approach to this problem would be and it would require a thousand uh, G's or something like that to to be able to uh, make, make this work well the point is that it means that these things have capabilities that we we saw 50, 60, 70 years ago uh, like the uh, the, the uh, Air Force Intelligence document uh, from, 19, from July of 1947 talking about these things seeming to disappear as if uh, by a very high speed or complete disintegration. We now know that um, because the uh, uh, spy radar that was on the uh, uh, on the uh, ship that uh, Kevin Day was on the Princeton, I guess it was, um, because that because that spy radar could follow, could follow the uh, target continuously, since it doesn't it doesn't have to move any massive mirror or antenna. Uh, it just changes phases between. Uh, radar signals. Changing the phase between two uh, uh, radar antennae will change the direction the, the beam goes. So, point being, we, we now know that these things can, can, in fact, travel at extreme rates of speed. Uh, and so now I have to go back and reevaluate what we rejected in the old data years ago. Like rejecting the idea that that loop, what I call the ampersand image, uh, reject the idea. Originally, we rejected the idea that the object could have made a loop like that in a tenth of a second. Now we have to know that, well, maybe they can. I don't know why they would, but it might be within the possibility. It might have been intentional. As I said, a number of people attempted to bump them uh, optical system a c- camera with a uh, telephoto lens and create a uh, a double looped image something like that and nobody was able to do it I wasn't able to do it uh, Richard Haynes uh, uh, you might know sure. a long time you probably wasn't able to do it so several other people attempted to do the same thing and uh, we couldn't we couldn't make anything. Vibrate like that. So, anyway, with what we know now, we can go back and reevaluate some of the uh, stuff that we had logged as, as uh, characteristics of UFOs years ago. At that time, we thought there was questionable since they required extremely high speed, but now we know that they, they do have extremely high speed capability.
1: Okay, that's pretty interesting. Uh, st- I st- wanted st- to mention, though,
0: I think okay, I should mention to our listeners, the press release, I made it into a PDF file so people can download it and read it, because I think all our listeners should get it. It's over at the PowerCast forums at com in the thread about the appearance of Dr. Bruce Maccabee, And there are a couple of paragraphs at the end of this release which really, really, Focus directly on this, which is one, the evidence of intent and the last paragraph which says to begin with these weird radar targets weren't controlled by humans. They were controlled now, by something. Right.
2: Now I specifically picked out the double-sided target uh, event, a whole bunch of stuff that happened in the the New Zealand sightings. uh, It's on my website. But this double sided target was very interesting because uh, the radar guys saw this target first behind the airplane, then off to the right wing, a few, four miles away, I I guess it was, on the right hand side. Then all of a sudden, the uh, uh, radar guy, this stuff This is all testimony based on the radar man, and also what was recorded on tape, so we know what happened. The tape recording has the radar guy saying, uh, you have something flying in formation with you, your target just doubled in size. Well, guess what, folks? Targets don't double in size under ordinary circumstances. There's no way that airplane radar target could have doubled in size. Without having something, un- or something flying along with it to increase the total radar cross section. Radar cross section is a term uh, used for how how strongly something reflects a radar signal. And a reflection from an airplane is f- traveling away from you in a straight line. Is going to be some value depending on how far away it is. It's going to be staying constant. Uh, it won't change. It won't do anything like double in size, uh, uh, so there must have been something right, right going with the air, with the uh, going along with the airplane itself, or the uh, the target of the, the radar. The, the plane plus unknown created a cross section that was twice as large as the airplane by itself.
0: Now, once again, this section is called the double-sized target at the end of Dr. McAbee's press release. But I want to really go and focus and nail down your feeling at the beginning of this press release that they're going to confirm that we're being visited by non-human intelligences. Because that is the wet dream, sorry to be so explicit, of all those who are hoping for UFO disclosure more to come with dr bruce mccabee with gene and randall you're in the paracast
3: hello paracast people i'm greg carlwood the host of the higher side chats podcast an uninterrupted and action-packed interview-based show where i talk to some of the brightest minds for our troubled times about all things paranormal occult esoteric and conspiratorial After ten years, we've heard it all. Alien moon bases, archons, hollow earth, technocratic and biomedical agendas, magic, mind control, and Lovecraftian monsters. Oh my. Usually, the first hour of the show is free, and the second hour is for members who sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at $8 a month. But praise be, we're giving Paracast listeners two free weeks of plus when you use the all-caps coupon code PARACAST. Go to thehiresidechats.com, sign up with the code PARACAST, and dive into the nearly never-ending archive of great interviews I've been lucky enough to get over the years. From David Politis to David Icke, and many, many guests not named David. Check it out. You're going to love it. All right, was that good? Can we use that one?
5: Attention, business owners body slammed by overwhelming debt. If your business is in trouble, hassled by creditors, if you're frustrated, finally fed up with big business bailouts while your business has been left for dead, please listen close. There's a brand new fast track bankruptcy. Some have even called it the biggest small business bailout in American history designed for individuals and their businesses. And look, almost no one knows about this yet. My attorney wasn't even aware of it. The truth is, beating the system has never been easy, because it's rigged, in a sense, against the little guy. But here's the jaw-dropping news nobody's talking about. They've literally just changed the system so that you can beat it, but only if you understand how the new game has to be played. Find out if you qualify at PocketsOfLight.com. This government-backed small business repair program is still legal but may not be renewed after the election. Fight back fairly, fight back ethically at PocketsOfLight.com.
14: Cancer categorizes over 100 diseases. Though we do not diagnose, treat, or cure cancer, GCN team is offering the Clemson University study where there was up to a 95% reduction in cancerous cells when exposed to a plant-derived mineral supplement. If you or a loved one are searching for answers to this horrifying disease, come to GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. We'll email you a copy for free. That's 877-878-4203.
19: health insurance hotline today learn how this 10-minute call can help you get lower health insurance rates this is a free service to help consumers learn the laws to help them qualify for lower health insurance rates so call right now to learn more 800-670-0946 800-670-0946 call 800-670-0946 800-670-0946
11: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: So we have Dr. Bruce McAbee joining us for some more segments of the Paracast. I want to remind you that we also offer... The PowerCast Plus to our listeners with this show free at the network ads, plus the After the PowerCast podcast. And for those who order up new long-term five-year or lifetime subscriptions, you get the coupon code, free coupon code for The Phenomenon, the documentary from James Fox. Bruce McAbee, have you seen that movie yet, The Phenomenon?
2: Uh, I have not. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but I haven't uh, I haven't seen it yet.
0: I'll have them send you a link. I think you deserve one. Now, let's get back to your press release.
2: Let me, really? let me just say what, I, what, I, what you had brought up. This is the linkage between what happened years ago and what's happened recently. Because of these observables, the new observables are the same as the old observables. Uh, and I say... In situations like this double-sided target. The double-sided target proves there was some object capable of pacing the airplane and then doing its own thing, jumping from one point to another. That's a little bit more technical than the uh, observables we've heard of from the AATIP because we haven't heard that much from them. But this is the connection between what happened years ago, the way which led to some interpretation and how we have to reinterpret based on what we now know about the capabilities of these new observables. And we don't have any aircraft or anything that moves in the sky that would result in if somebody was watching it, they, they would see the same observables, observables such as uh, where are the wings, uh, where's the engine. I can see it traveling along in a path, straight path that high speed but I don't get uh, it doesn't seem to disappear how can an object disappear all this stuff as I said these observables connect the the past with the present and sort of force us into the uh, conclusion that something's going on that we don't understand yet apparently not related to human human beings one further derived observable is uh, extreme acceleration to go from uh, travels, let's say, ten or twelve miles in t- in a few seconds. That would turn any human being into a puddle of jelly. And as a matter of fact, Kenneth Arnold was the first person to point this out. He said that he says he saw these things flying along he couldn't see anything, any ordinary aspect to it. They were semi-circular and uh, the way they flew like uh, saucers skipped in the water. He wanted to get the idea that it would go a short distance in some direction and flip around uh, in zero time and go in another direction and back and forth and back and forth. Reminds me of my grandmother. You You say, what's that got to do with your grandmother? My grandmother in green and in Massachusetts, Greenfield, Massachusetts, in uh, 1947, uh, she was out putting clothes on the clothesline. Now the, the east side, on the east side of uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts, is a sharply rising little—I say little, but it's probably 500 or 1, 700 feet high—ridge mountain mount, that blocks your view of the uh, east. It blocks your view to the east from Greenfield. She was uh, very close to the base of this little of this mountain that run as a Lego mountain that runs north south. And she's putting, hanging up the uh, clothes so she's got her head tilted up to see as she puts the uh, clothespin on the uh, whatever she's hanging up. And she sees two round, shiny objects come heading westward, appear they appear to her field of view traveling from uh, when she first sees it as they uh, get past the mountain and then she said they came uh, along a short distance and made a right angle turn and headed to her left, which was to the north so they were traveling to the west made a right angle turn and headed north now grandma wasn't an aerodynamicist she knew what airplanes looked like but she also knew that things don't make right angle turns She was uh, when when other there are other stories of sightings in the newspaper back in nineteen forty-seven. This time, nineteen June, June of forty-seven, June and July. So it was okay to talk about uh, flying saucers without having a bag over your head. Uh, And she apparently told a number of people that she had seen these things. But then the the Reaction, the skeptical reaction set in about the 1st uh, or 2nd or 3rd of July And something became uh, illegal to see UFOs, flying saucers uh, You had to be nuts to see a flying saucer, or at least nuts to report it uh, My mother says, she remembers her, her mother, my grandmother Talking about these things making a right angle turn, and heading north at high speed and at first, my grandfather, uh, her husband, was happy to have her talk about these things she saw. But then, when a skeptical uh, reaction set in, there couldn't be anything like it. Anybody, who's, uh, anybody who talks about something like that must be nuts. Grandpa told his wife to shut up about it. <laughs> and according to my mother, she shut up and never said thing, a word about it again until probably 66 or 67. Uh, When I asked her, I I learned about it from my mother, and uh, I then interviewed my grandmother. Uh, So that's uh, a case of observables where no, you know, is there observable like no aerodynamic surfaces, no obvious machine engines for propulsion, uh, shape being circular, uh,
0: and so on. Let me ask you briefly here. We can cover it in our next segment. We have a couple more. That is, of all the stuff you've investigated, have you ever personally had a sighting?
2: Uh, I had a sighting in, uh, in Gulf Breeze, Florida, uh, at, the t- at a time when they were having zillions of sightings.
0: Uh, oh, yes, with the guy who once called himself Mr. Ed, Ed Walters. Yes,
2: yeah, Ed Walters. Uh, Ed Walder's sighting began in uh, November of 1987. Actually, there were six or so sightings before his on the day that it all began, November 11th, 1987, which I won't forget because it was a big snowstorm in the Washington, D.C. area where I live. So things are hot snow. It was blowing, blowing snow in uh, D.C. when uh, flying saucers were being seen by people in Gulf
0: Breeze. I'll tell you what, let's leave it as a cliffhanger and go into our next segment where you'll talk about your sighting. I should tell you briefly, I did interview Ed Walters, like probably 1989, for a magazine I published at the time. We have Dr. Bruce McAbee with Gene and Randall. You're in. The (laughs) Paracast.
6: USA Radio News with, Dan Naraki. with the presidential campaign in its final days, both President Trump and former Vice President Biden are talking about their plans for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking at a rally Saturday in Flint, Michigan, Biden said he would push for a national mask mandate. We're going to act to get COVID under
0: control. On day one of my presidency, I'll put in action, a plan, a national mandate, mask wearing, social distancing, testing, tracing. All things, as
6: President Obama just said, that should have and could have been put in place months and months ago. While President Trump touted upcoming treatments and vaccines to battle the virus at a rally in Bucks County, Pennsylvania.
7: And our vaccine will eradicate the virus and end the pandemic once and for all. Americans will return to school and to life. By slashing red tape and cutting bureaucracy, we're producing this vaccine
6: in record time. USA Radio News. More than 90 million Americans have taken advantage of the opportunities to vote early, according to new data released on Saturday. That's nearly double the number of early ballots cast in 2016 and 60% of all ballots cast four years ago. The data from the U.S. Elections Project at the University of Florida predicts a turnout that will surpass the 138 million who voted in 2016 and could give the 2020 election the highest participation percentage in more than a century. More than 1 million Slovakians lined up Saturday to be tested for the coronavirus. The unique plan to try to curb a second wave of infections sweeping across Europe involved more than 40,000 medical, military, law enforcement and administrative personnel to coordinate the day of testing at 5,000 testing sites. The goal is to eventually test Slovakia's entire adult population with everyone over the age of 10, which is about 4 million people, to be tested in the next two weeks. The nation of around 5.5 million has reported more than 57,000 cases of COVID-19 so far. This is USA Radio News.
19: Get clean. Call now and learn more. 800-296-1252. 800-296-1252. 800-296-1252.
7: 800-296-1252. This is Jacques Vallée.
14: You're listening to the podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: Dr. Bruce McAbee, okay, let's hear about that sighting now.
1: Uh, you were saying that uh, you had a sighting of your own uh, in, uh, near, in, in the area of Gulf Breeze back when they were having their uh, big flap.
2: Yes, the first big flap was uh, started in November of 87 and went through to July of 88. There were several hundred witnesses during that period of time, besides Ed. Then, for the next uh, well, eight, seven or eight years, the, sighting, the sightings came and went. Uh, they started in November of 90. Well, November of 91, they started having uh, sightings of things going through the sky that would start off as uh, red lights, and then very often, turn white and sort of pulsing pulsing bright white lights, it would change from red to to, uh, white and uh, it became so frequent that uh, a group of people essentially ended up going out virtually every night except in in February and March when there was lousy weather down there they would be out for uh, know 300 days, 300 nights out of the year and they saw stuff very often well, uh, initially the, this thing they call Bubba, little brother, uh, would appear and move through the sky some way or other and then go away and go off in a burst of light. Uh, it was one at a time until um, the summer of 1970, 1992, or 1991 I should say, when uh, uh, in the fall of 1991 in September, uh, they started seeing rings of light appear. Well, I lived in uh, uh, Maryland at that point. Uh, I was keeping track of what was going on because of my connections with Ed and a lot of other uh, the uh, UFO investigators down there at the time. Uh, so I decided I'd go down there and see what was, see what was happening when they started seeing rings of light in the sky. That was sort of like too much. <laughs> so anyway. I got there and uh, on the first night uh, I was with a group of people who went to sort of one of their standard sighting areas where they sit right at the south end of the Pensacola Bay Bridge, which by the way was partially destroyed uh, uh, a month or so ago, Uh, so don't try to cross from uh, Gulf Breeze to Pensacola. If you do that, you, you go through a lot of water. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, at the south end of the bridge, there was a parking, parking area where, where people would often stay and uh, uh, just wait to see if something happened. And the first night I was out, nothing happened. I queried people about their previous sighting, did sort of the action, activities of a typical UFO investigator. Then the next night, I'm standing there talking to somebody. And I have my binoculars hanging around my neck. I had a, a a big ear type of uh, parabolic microphone to pick up very faint noises. I had a camera uh, with a telephoto lens and all sorts of stuff ready for uh, to catch a UFO. And uh, all of a sudden some woman yelled, there it is. She didn't say what direction to look. I just, I just looked up and sure enough there was a spot in the sky that wasn't there before. We were on the north side of Gulf Breeze and in Gulf Breeze itself there was a playing field that had bright lights and of course the lights of the city itself all adding together to cause a glow in the atmosphere. The atmosphere was full of moisture and you had a glow extending upwards uh, caused by all this light so you could you could, with your naked eye, you could not see the stars through this glowing atmosphere. Uh, with the binoculars, you could cut through the glare of the atmosphere and see what was, see the stars up there. So when she, this lady yelled, "There it is," I just turned my head up, saw there was a spot up in the sky, a spot of light that hadn't been there before. Whipped up the, dot of the binoculars, and sure enough, I could see a ring of lights. And I, and I had my uh, I turned on my uh, audio recorder, and I can hear myself when I play it back. Counting off on, 8 There's eight little lights in there. And then I crank up the uh, big ear. Now, the reason for having the uh, the uh, big ear uh, parabolic microphone was for all these previous cases. I had assumed that if it was if it were a hoax, then they were using some sort of a uh, engine propell- propulsion mechanism we get there capable of, these things have been noted to go across wind and even into the wind uh, indicating that there was some means of, means of propulsion and uh, I figured I could catch that means of propulsion with this big ear uh, the, the type of parabolic, parabolic microphone that you hear somebody whispering across, far across the room I put it up and I pointed it at, uh, at the lights up there in the sky and I heard nothing so uh, that left, left me with a feeling that this, this could be real. Then uh, I noticed that, I, I, uh, I, re- I reasoned that if this had been a, manufa- a, a person, uh, if this is a hoax, a framework with eight lights attached to it, I ought to be able to see the framework if it was lower than the air glow, the air glow extends upwards from the ground up. But if this thing had been down low in the air glow, uh, there would have been glowing atmosphere behind it, and I could see structure. I reasoned that I should be able to see a structure silhouetted against the air glow. So I stared with my binoculars, and I couldn't see any structure at all, just points of light that said to me that this thing was farther away than the air glow. And the difference was whether it was a few feet in diameter south of the, uh, underneath the air glow, or 10 or more feet in diameter being above the air glow. And uh, since I couldn't see any structure, I couldn't see any indication that there, was, there must be some, I that there must be some structure. Something must be holding these lights together. If I couldn't see it, was at an altitude of several thousand feet and that gave me a distance uh, a minimum distance could be uh, several thousand feet away from me and therefore like 10 or so feet in diameter and that's a pretty uh, bodacious hoax if it's a hoax nobody ever found anything in Gulf Breeze on the ground that indicated a hoax by the way although nearly 200 bubba sightings of objects traveling over Gulf Breeze they were seen between November 1990 and uh, July 1992, some almost 200 sightings. Nobody ever found any remains of trash or anything. Certainly we were thinking right off the bat that this might be flares carry on balloons and so on, but when you see stuff going into the wind or across wind, I don't know, it's the explanations become more bizarre than the uh, perhaps UFO reality.
0: I wanted to focus a little bit on Ed Walters because that's the means through which a lot of us heard of this case. And he wrote a book about it, of course. And there were his photos and then the report of the discovery of some kind of model in one of his homes, he was a builder, that may or may not have represented the model used in some of his photos. Now, separating the large number of Gulf Breeze cases that may or may not be genuine. Specifically about Ed Walters, do you think what he said about his experiences were genuine? And we'll probably have you answer that in our next segment. But my magazine, Caveat Emtor, had an interview with, quote-unquote, Mr. Ed. So I do remember a lot about this. I remember, of course, that my old friend Jim Mosley lived in Key West, and he went out to visit Mr. Ed. Kind of an interesting year there. We have Dr. Bruce McAbee with Gene and Randall. You're in The Paracast.
12: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
8: the paracast.plus to learn more about paracast plus
9: Bags under the eyes, crow's feet, fine lines and wrinkles are things adults complain about as they age. Now there's Instantly Ageless. It works in minutes and is great for men and women. Here's a clip from the Rachel Ray Show, testing the results of Instantly Ageless.
12: Board certified dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe. If you're looking to try to turn back the clock on a budget you know, in the privacy of your own home, but actually there's some recent technologies emerging, almost like changes the behavior of the skin right. while it sits on the skin. She went off to try a product
17: called Instantly Ageless.
12: Yeah. Instantly, you could see a difference. Even the cameraman were like, wow, look at the difference. Yeah. But I would definitely use this product. (laughs) This product, within minutes of applying it, it was actually a very dramatic rejuvenation.
9: Try Instantly Ageless today at GCNLife.com. That's GCNLife.com. 30-day money-back guarantee and preferred price discount at GCNLife.com. That's GCNLife.com.
20: says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast,
11: the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: All right, we're back with the final segment with Dr. Bruce McAbee, but he will be back, or someone said I'll be back. He'll be right back for after the paracast for all our subscribers to the paracast plus so regarding specifically ed walter's claims bruce do you accept them as genuine or are they separate from all the others
2: my, my answer to all those are yes they're all real it's, it's hard to believe all this stuff that, that that happened but with ed walters there's a very unique situation that occurred which was that we investigators had an impact on the sighting Tell the his first pictures and sighting in November of 1987. He was essentially alone, or accompanied by his uh, on a couple of sightings by his wife and, and his kids, his boy, boy and girl.
0: What about the case of that model? Of a UFO he found, I guess, in the attic. Was it the attic of one of his homes? Was this just somebody playing games or what?
2: Well, we, we believe it was somebody playing games. The, the model, Ed, Ed lived in a house on a road known as Silverthorn, And he left, he left there uh, in uh, December of 1988 and he moved to another house and he uh, immediately put his house up for sale and it took about a year for it to sell during that time there are many times when it was virtually unlocked so somebody else somebody could have gotten in there without actually breaking, breaking their way in a number of times uh, Ed said that he uh, uh, saw somebody picking up his trash one time not a trash man, they thought that was strange but when this model was found it was found by the guy who bought Ed's house and he, it was found in the following way uh, the guy who bought the house moved into it and then and this is uh, would be like December I think of 91 uh, and he, the, the guy who moved in uh, after being there for several weeks wanted to connect up his uh, refrigerator to a water supply so he could get auto, make his automatic ice maker work and in Florida there are, no, there are no basements so to speak, the house is on a slab so he knew that he had to go up into the attic to find a uh, pipe. He had to, he, he found in the kitchen this little pipe that comes down, comes uh, out of the wall, and uh, as it was crimped on the end so that it wouldn't leak, it didn't have a valve on it, it was crimped on the end. And so uh, the guy who bought the house realized that he had to shut off the main water to the house so there wouldn't be any water pressure. Then he could saw off this uh, crimp on the end of the little pipe. Put on a valve so he isn't looking for a shutoff valve for the house. It can't be under the house, there's no basement. So he goes up a stairway that's inside the uh, garage. Inside the garage, and uh, Ed pointed out numerous times the garage main garage doors were open so that people could look in the house if they wanted to, uh, if they're thinking of buying it. Anyway, uh, Mr. Menzer that's his name, Bob Menzer goes up the stairway and walks, starts climbing over the floor joists which have insulation, blown, blown in insulation he goes over to where he thinks he's up above the uh, refrigerator and starts moving the uh, blowing, blown insulation sideways to find, uh, find a, a, a pipe and finally he does find a pipe but it doesn't there's no there's no shutoff valve on the pipe. So he had to call up Ed and find out where there was a shutoff valve. And Ed tells him that it's in the, uh, in the yard in front of the house. It's unfortunate that Menzer didn't tell him tell Ed what he had found at that time because by this time, as uh, Menzer was moving the uh, insulation, he came up came upon this model. It was sort of like buried in the insulation. Anyway, he, Menzer, Menzer said, I found this model. I, uh, I My thought was, well, he, Menzer was aware of Ed's photos to some extent. Uh, well, he hadn't lived in the area before, and when he moved in, he heard about it, about the house. The fact that he had bought the house for that guy who was who was taking UFO photos. Anyway, he thought, well, maybe Ed had made a model for some reason or other. He put it on a shelf and left it there. And uh, a few weeks later, a uh, newspaper journalist uh, was checking up on uh, Ed's, well, all these sightings that occurred like two years before. Now we're, we're up to 1992. About and right, the um, the journalist uh, comes comes along. The, the, Ed, the door of Ed's house talks to Mr. Menzer says, and says according to Menzer the uh, reporter said have you found any, have you seen any UFOs around here and Menzer said no and the reporter said have you seen any photos of UFOs around here and the reporter said uh, Menzer says no Another the reporter asked have you found any models around here and Menzer says oh yeah I did find one and So that's how this uh, model came about. Uh, it was featured in a, a newspaper story in uh, May. I think it was um uh, 1992. It might have been 1991. I, it's, been a long, it's been a long time since I thought about this stuff. And that's how the uh, how the model came about. So I agreed that the uh, papers paper used in the model, part of the construction construction paper, was uh, a blueprint. For a house that turned out to be a house that Ed never made, he made a blueprint for a speculation blueprint, but never actually built a house for it. Uh, there was a huge argument over there between the skeptics and the you might say the skeptics and the believers over whether or not Ed was telling the truth with respect to this model. Uh, Ed said he had never made a model, and it, in fact does not appear in any one of his pictures. So it would have to be a, an extraneous model uh, if, it, if it was something that Ed made, but. It was argued instead that somebody had taken the tra- taken Ed's trash, taken a, a blueprint out of the trash, used the blueprint paper because it's nice and stiff to uh, make a model, and had made this model, which is not actually duplicate any of the models in the photos, but it's the same sort of class, same classification, you might say.
0: Hey, for those who want to get more information about the things you do, where do they go? Mention that website again.
2: Brumac.mysite.com.
0: We have a link over at the PowerCast. So Bruce McAbee will be back for after the PowerCast after we end this segment. Just want to tell you listeners, you can find our stuff on, of course, Twitter. We don't get censored by Twitter. Just check for the PowerCast. We have two segments on Facebook, they aren't censored either, not because they're liberal or conservative, but they don't get involved in the political byplay. We also have branded merchandise. And that's really good stuff shirts and throw pillows and everything else. You can find more if you go to the Paracast.shop, the Paracast.shop for our online store. Then there's the Paracast Plus. At the Paracast plus, we offer a version of the PowerCast with enhanced audio free of the network ads and the after the PowerCast podcast quite often continues the discussion on the main show. Like last week, we had James Fox with more insights into his documentary movie, The Phenomenon. And this week, of course, Bruce McAbee will be coming back for that one. To learn more about the PowerCast Plus, go to theparacast.plus for long-term subscriptions. We'll offer free coupon codes to the phenomenon. We don't have many left because each coupon code could be used only once. So subscribe today at theparacast.plus. Bruce McAbee, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having
14: me.